On January 8, 2005, Dave Shaw and Don Shirley entered Bushman's Hole, a deep submerged freshwater sinkhole in the northern Cape province of South Africa. Reaching a depth of 886 feet or 270 meters, only one of them would return alive. Find out what happened on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. Now, just bear with me this week because I'm getting over a cold, so I might sound a little congested still. And it's actually thunderstorming here, so you might be able to hear that in the background, but hopefully not. But this week, we're going to cover a highly requested topic. David John Shaw, a 50-year-old deep diver from Australia. Deep divers are the daredevils of the diving community. And in this episode, I'm going to provide some background on why Dave Shaw and Don Shirley were diving at Bushman's Hole and what happened to them while they were there. This episode also features our first time discussing rebreathers, so I'm also going to do my best to break down what these are and how they work for my non-diver listeners. But first, let's describe the layout of Bushman's Hole, and then we'll talk about why Dave and Don were there. Bushman's Hole is a freshwater sinkhole, meaning that the water there is nice and clear. It's almost 900 feet, or 274 meters deep, about as tall as the Eiffel Tower. The top of Bushman's Hole has a narrow opening, and at about 66 feet, or 20 meters down, it opens up almost like an upside-down funnel to about 400 feet, or 122 meters wide. Now, I know this can be a little hard to picture in an audio podcast, so make sure you head over to our Instagram page, at NarcosisPod, I'm going to share a picture of a map of Bushman's Hole as well as some other relevant photos. To provide background on why Dave and Don were diving there, on December 17, 1994, nearly a decade before Dave and Don's first dive, 20-year-old Dion Dreyer of Johannesburg, South Africa, was conducting a practice dive with a team of technical divers at Bushman's Hole. Dion had recently been invited to join a South Africa cave diving association, and he was asked to be a dive support for a planned dive reaching 492 feet or 150 meters down. On that fateful December day, Dion wouldn't return to the surface. First-hand accounts from those who dove with him state Dion was lost during their ascent back to the surface. They theorized Dion had lost consciousness because of either oxygen toxicity or hypercapnia, a condition of abnormally elevated carbon dioxide, which can be induced by the high work rate of breathing underwater at such a deep, deep depth. Dion's dad, Theo, hired divers to attempt the retrieval of Dion's body. But during their attempt, there was no sign of a body, only Dion's helmet. Dion's parents left without their son's body placed a plaque on a rock wall near the entrance of Bushman's Hole as a remembrance for their son. This death would rock the local cave diving community because almost always a diver's body was recovered, but sadly for Dion, this was not the case, and for many years it was assumed that his body would never be recovered because it was simply too deep, and the plaque was a continual reminder for cave divers that a body lay within. Then, in October of 2004, 
Dave Shaw and Don Shirley were diving Bushman's hole. Don, in an interview with NPR, states that the hole is so large and dark, even the most powerful flashlights aren't very effective. He states, quote, you're in pitch black, absolutely pitch black. So if you shine your light any direction, it'll disappear. The darkness will eat the light. Basically, being 900 foot or 274 meters in a cave, you might as well be on the moon. In fact, I think more people have actually walked on the moon than have actually been at those sort of depths in caves." End quote. And it's true, 12 people have walked on the surface of the moon compared to only 6 people total that have dove successfully past 820 feet or 250 meters. And while Dave and Don were down there on their 9 hour and 40 minute dive, Dave's light catches something an old wetsuit filled with bones. Dave swam over to the body and tried to pull it free. He knew exactly who this was, but breathing heavy and already a minute over his planned bottom time, Dave thought, I shouldn't work this hard at this depth. It wasn't in the plan, so they had to leave the body there. As soon as they got back to the surface, Dave told Don that he wanted to retrieve Dion's body. They called up Dion's parents and told them, we're going to retrieve your son's body, and almost immediately, they started planning the recovery dive. Before we discuss the recovery dive, let's first talk about the dangers of diving at 900 feet or 274 meters deep and what rebreathers are. Being that these divers are at such an incredible depth, pre-planning is extremely important. Every 33 feet or 10 meters down you go essentially doubles the risk that you're exposed to. Too much nitrogen is like a narcotic and you can suddenly feel very drunk. Too much helium can make you twitch uncontrollably. And if you're breathing too heavy, like panting when trying to remove Dion's body, you'll pass out. There's also another important safety factor to consider, decompression sickness, also known as the bends. Ascending to the surface too quickly won't give the proper time for the gases in your body to decompress, and those expanding gas bubbles can block blood flow or cause other serious life-threatening complications. Diving as deep as Don and Dave were planning requires a lot of technical training because these divers aren't using a normal diving system. They're using devices known as a rebreather, Again, this is very technical, so I'm going to do my best to break down what these are and how they work. When you're doing a normal open water recreational dive, you're using what's known as an open circuit system. You pull air from your air tank using your regulator, or also known as your mouthpiece. And as you breathe out, that exhaled gas goes from your lungs into the waters around you. For divers using an open circuit system, one air tank is going to last you roughly an hour, depending on how deep you are and how well you're controlling your breathing. For Dave and Don, however, they were using what's known as a closed circuit system. Closed circuit diving involves the use of a rebreather as well as other equipment to allow some or all of your breathing gas to be recycled. In this system, when you inhale, gas will travel from your tank to your mouthpiece, just like it does in an open circuit system, but when you exhale, the gas doesn't go into the surrounding waters. Instead, it's transferred back into your tank so that you can reuse it. 
But a rebreather is more than just the mouthpiece. It's an entire system used to provide and recycle breathing gas. Exhaling through the mouthpiece of a rebreather sends the gas back from your lungs to a rebreather component known as a carbon dioxide scrubber. Here, that scrubber is going to remove the carbon dioxide from the gas before sending it to the counter lungs. And the counter lungs are a device that assists divers when inhaling and exhaling gas by maintaining the same pressure as the diver's lungs. Now, if you're not a deep diver, I know exactly what you're thinking. This is all very confusing. But don't worry, the main takeaway from this is that a rebreather allows you to recycle your air. According to a study published in Marine Technology Society Journal, closed circuit divers consume 17 times less air than their open circuit diver counterparts. This is the critical piece of information that allows Dave and Don to go on these insanely deep, incredibly long dives. But even with recycling air, Dave and Don would still need to carry six air tanks with them. They had a very, very long dive ahead of them. Are you searching for a new true crime podcast to listen to? Then search no further than Military True Crime Addict. David Kokish walks you through a plethora of actual military true crime stories that have never been reported on by news outlets or media. Each episode features a detailed account of true crime that in some way relates to our military, veterans, and their extended families. There will also be an abundance of episodes on serial killers with a military background that you will not believe. Military True Crime Addict provides a voice to victims so you can hear their side of the story, and it raises awareness for the terrible crimes and those most impacted. You don't need to know anything about the military to enjoy this podcast, so what are you waiting for? Go listen to Military True Crime Addict now. So now that you know more about rebreathers, let's talk about the dive to recover Dion's body. On January 8th, 2005, at 6.15am, just over two months after initially locating Dion's body, Don Shirley and Dave Shaw would re-enter the waters at Bushman's Hole. During their pre-planning, Don had done everything in his power to minimize the risks. He planned to have 35 backup tanks of gas in the water along different parts of the shot line, enough so that he, Dave, and even some support divers could survive total rebreather failure. He arranged for a winch system to be set up so that it could haul a diver on a stretcher over the cliff of the hole to a decompression chamber that the police had trucked in. To also cope with any medical emergencies, Don recruited a doctor to be on scene. Don was confident in their pre-planning. He stressed over and over that this was an attempted body recovery. No one has ever attempted a body recovery at this depth, and Don didn't want to lose any of his divers to this mission. Dave, Don, and the other support divers gathered for their last briefing the day before the dive. Dave was the diver planned to go the deepest and recover Dion's body, and he told the group of divers, quote, The most important person on this mission is you. If you have a problem, deal with your problem and forget about me. It's better to have one person dead than two, end quote. In a private conversation, Don asked Dave if he wanted him to come all the way down to the bottom if he had any problems. 
Dave considered this question for a moment and then finally said yes, but only come down if I said no. Normally in a cave dive, when you flash your light or wave it around, that's the distress signal. With that, Don turned to the group for one last message. Quote, If Dave doesn't make it, if I don't make it, we stay there. That's the end of the story. We don't want to be recovered. End quote. Don, in his interview with NPR, recounted their entry into Bushman's Hole on January 8, 2005. They dropped their shot line, or aka their safety line, down into the depths, and Dave went in first, and Don followed 14 minutes later. At 14 minutes in, Dave should have been to Dion's body and should be almost done with his recovery. At this point, he would slowly ascend to meet Don at their rendezvous point at 725 feet or 221 meters. But about 500 feet down or 152 meters down during Don's descent, he saw Dave's light below him, but it was remaining still, too still. Don was also expecting to see some of Dave's bubbles ascending past him, but since he didn't see any of Dave's bubbles, he knew instantly something had gone wrong. At this point, it was more than 20 minutes into Dave's dive, and he should have been ascending. Don knew there was no room for error here. Dave hadn't signaled for help, but Don knew that he needed it. A motionless diver at this depth almost certainly meant a dead diver, but Don couldn't leave Dave behind without seeing if there was anything he could do. Don descended past his planned depth and reaching 833 feet or 254 meters deeper than he had ever gone before, he suddenly heard a large crack. His rebreather controller, located on his forearm, had imploded under the intense pressure that comes from diving at this depth. At this point, it wasn't that big of a deal for Don because he had trained for this type of scenario and knew exactly what to do. He would need to add oxygen to his gas mixture manually. But this was a full-time occupation and Don knew that he could no longer attempt to save Dave. At this type of depth, problems can easily cascade into death. Oxygen becomes toxic after about 180 feet or 55 meters down and Don had accidentally added too much oxygen into his mixture. Don knew he was in serious danger, but he also knew that he couldn't ascend too quickly. Don says, quote, The surface is not somewhere that you can actually go to to solve a problem. When you have a problem, you have to solve that problem there where you are. And if you don't solve that problem, you don't come back. And I was thinking, okay, Dave might come back. He's either dead or he's working his way back, but all I could deal with was what was right in front of me." End quote. Every minute spent at this depth added a full hour of decompression time on the way back up, and slowly ascending back to the surface, Don now had 10 hours in front of him. But due to the high oxygen levels, Don started to pass out. Then he got a helium bubble in his ear. And if you didn't know this, a lot of your balance comes from your inner ear. So when Don got this helium bubble inside of his ear, he lost his balance completely. He had absolutely no sense of what was up, down, sideways, or anything. And then he lost grip on the shot line, his lifeline to get out of the cave. He kept passing out, waking up, passing out, waking up, swimming in these little circles, spinning around, trying to find that guideline. 
This line was the only way Don knew how to get out of the cave. At this depth, it's pitch black. You don't see the light coming from the surface. You can only see what's right in front of your flashlight. Finally, Don's light caught a hold of the guideline. He grabbed it, but now he was experiencing extreme vertigo. And because of this, Don began vomiting underwater in between breaths. He was eventually able to stabilize himself and slowly ascend back to the surface where he eventually met with a support diver. Using a waterproof pencil and a slate made for underwater communication, Don wrote, I'm okay and Dave's not coming back. Don was hopeful that Dave would, but since they hadn't met up yet, he knew the harsh reality of the situation. And at this point, the support diver had one mission, to support Don back to the surface. All Don could do was breathe. He was so exhausted from everything that he had already experienced, he could barely even swim. After a 12 and a half hour dive, Don emerged from Bushman's Hole and had to be winched up off the cliff face. And within 22 minutes, he was sitting in a decompression chamber before being taken to a hospital in Johannesburg the next morning. Don survived, but Dave wouldn't emerge from Bushman's Hole that day. Dave was dead. Over the next two weeks, Don would have to undergo 11 total decompression chamber sessions for a total of 27 hours due to the helium bubble in his inner ear. It was more than a month before he could think clearly or walk down a crowded street. He was left with permanent damage that impaired his balance, but after a couple months of recovery, he was finally able to go cave diving again. During Don's treatments, a week after their failed mission, Dave's body was found. It had floated up and was found about 66 feet or 20 meters under the surface, caught under an underwater ceiling inside the cave. Dave's body was entangled in a line and so was a body bag, the body bag used to retrieve Dion's body. Ultimately, Dave had accomplished his mission. He recovered Dion's body and brought it back to the surface. Sadly, in this event, we yet again see another diver who recorded his own death, and the mystery of what happened to Dave Shaw was soon uncovered. Don Shirley and Peter Herbst, one of the support divers for the mission, turned on Dave's last video. They had to know what happened to Dave. The video starts and they see Dave entering the hole. They hear the shot line squeak through his fingers as he slides down, and in just 11 minutes, Dave reaches the bottom of the cave, more than a minute and a half faster than they had planned for. As soon as he hit the bottom, he instantly began swimming over to Dion's body, pulled out the body bag, and got to work. Dave started to slip the body bag over Dion's leg, and as soon as he does this, he accidentally kicks up silt, and when it clears, Dion's body is now eerily floating in front of Dave. This was totally unexpected. Dion, as it turned out, was not completely skeletal, as everyone had theorized, and he was no longer stuck in the silt. Instead of decomposing, his corpse had actually mummified into a soap-like composition that gave it mass and neutral buoyancy. The fact that the body was now loose and not pinned to the ground was not one of the scenarios that the recovery team had thought about. The body was not meant to be floating. It's a lot easier to slip a bag over an immobile body than one that's floating and rolling around in front of you. 
In this video, they can see Dave fumbling, and for the first time, he lets out an audible grunt of effort. Dave's increasing distress in his breathing is audible in the video, and Don questions why Dave didn't leave the body at this point. Every scenario that they had planned for involved getting Dion's body into a bag, and since he was now floating, the body could float freely to the surface. However, Dave is responding only to the pounding of his narcosis and his determination to finish the job. He keeps working to control the body, letting go of his light so he can use both hands. Dion is rolling and turning in front of him, resisting Dave's efforts to get him into the bag. Dave has now been at it for two minutes, and his line is seemingly everywhere. It snags on his light, and Dave pauses to clear it. Don, watching the video, threw his hands up in anger at this. A cave diver should never let gear float loose. It's a recipe for disaster, Don says. Now, Dave is acting confused. He's working at the height of his torso instead of at his feet, and his movements have lost purpose. After almost four minutes of bottom time, Dave pulls out his scissors, fumbling to open them and trying to cut away Dion's dive tanks as he slid the body into the bag per the plan, but Dave's breathing continues to increase. Suddenly, he loses his footing on the sloping bottom and scrambles back to the body in a cloud of silt. The grunts of effort and hateful little bursts of sound are painfully frequent. Dave's narcosis was increasing, and according to Peter at this point, quote, you focus on the one thing. You don't focus on the dive anymore. The one thing becomes everything. And I think with Dave, it became the body, the body, the body, end quote. Dave was essentially feeling the effects of seven or eight martinis, and his judgment was clouded. His main focus wasn't about saving himself. He wouldn't, couldn't focus on that. He could only focus on what he was seeing right in front of him, Dion Dreyer's body. Finally, Dave has recovered Dion's body. He turns to ascend up to try to meet Don at the rendezvous point, but he gets snagged on something. Turning awkwardly, and his breath now becoming desperate, he notices that his line is snagged on Dion's dive tanks that are sitting at the bottom. He pulls at the cat's cradle of the cave line, as if trying to sort it out, every breath now a sharp grunt. Dave struggles to move forward again, but is anchored by the weight of Dion's body. The scissors are still in his hand, trying to cut himself out of the tangled line. The pace of his breathing keeps accelerating, and there's a tragic gasping quality to it, so painful to listen to, that Don and Peter turn the sound off. 21 minutes into his dive, Dave begins to pass out from the high amounts of carbon dioxide. He's dying. And one minute later, there's no more movements. Dave Shaw is dead. Nuno Gomez, who is the last person alive today who knows what it's like to dive to the bottom of Bushman's Hole, understands why Dave had trouble reacting to a body that suddenly was floating instead of anchored. He says, quote, You don't think of a new plan when you're down there. It doesn't work. Your mind is clouded. You cannot do it. When he started putting the body in the bag and it didn't work, he should have immediately turned around and left, end quote. 
Nuno also wonders why Dave didn't do more buildup dives to increase his tolerance for narcosis. Nuno doesn't think the risk of losing a diver was worth recovering Dion's body, but either way, he honors Dave. It was a noble dive that took a lot of courage. Other divers who were there that day state that they are very sorry Dave died, but they are not sorry for him. Werner von Scheich says that Dave was going to go back, and the fact that Dion was there just made it more interesting and more exciting. Dave knew the risk, they were his risks, and he took them. Every diver there that day will keep diving, and instead of second-guessing Dave, they will say that they are proud of him. Peter Herbst says Dave took rebreather diving where it has never been before, and people never knew about rebreathers until he died, showing them what could be done. Ten days after Bushman's Hole gave the bodies back, Theo and Marie Dreyer went to see their son. When the morgue attendant asked them to step in, Marie wasn't sure what to expect. But when she saw a fully fleshed out body, her tears stopped and she felt happy. Lying in front of her was her son, and Theo marveled that Dion's legs still held their athletic shape. Anne Shaw, Dave Shaw's wife, would later spread Dave's ashes around South Africa, the place that he had come to know and love so much. Lisa Shaw, in a eulogy about her father, wrote, quote, I am at peace because he died doing something he loved. Very few of us will ever get that privilege, end quote. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions about the episode, you can head over to our Instagram page or our Discord server to ask them. I also recently set up a Patreon for the podcast, so for just $3 a month or the price of one coffee, you can vote on what to hear next, get exclusive updates, get a shout out at the end of the next episode, and get 10% off merchandise. Thank you so much to my newest patrons, Marilee and Zork Fox. You guys are the best and your support helps the podcast tremendously. And thanks again to Laura, Andy, and Finney for your continued support. Andy, I hope you have a great week at work. And Finney, I wish you good luck on your rugby tournament. Thanks again, and I'll see you guys next week. Music